It's another edition of Baseball and Beyond. Today we go beyond. No, we're not going to talk baseball, Jamie Rivers. <laughs> yeah, today's not a day for baseball, although I do love the Cardinals. Well, I, this is like I call it, beyond, and I like going beyond, and Jamie Rivers is a former Blue, a former Sen, a former Bruin. We're out of time. You've played a lot of places. But uh, I've, uh, looked, I looked at your career last night. I've looked at your career before, but... Um, I was surprised at how many great players you played with. I mean, when you look at the Ottawa team, obviously the Blues team, you played with a Detroit team that I kind of don't remember you playing with. But uh, just looking back at your career, let's just talk about first the fact that you guys are going to be playing in an alumni game as a Blue, and you're back with all these great Hall of Famers again. And you kind of pinch yourself going, there's Wayne, there's Bernie, there's Brett. Yeah, obviously it's a huge honor to be in the same locker room as those guys, just like it was the first time around. Uh, I joke all the time that you know, every every room needs a court jester, and I try to fulfill that role, keep these Hall of Famers amused, and if you do a good job, they keep you around for a while. So, no, it, it's it's great. I've had the privilege of playing with a lot of really good players uh, and on many different teams, but uh, for me it's always been uh, the ability to you know kind of integrate within the team without overstepping boundaries, playing within my own game and doing what I do best, and that way that you're never uh, looked at or viewed at as somebody who they don't want around or that just doesn't fit in, period. And found a way to fit in, and I enjoy myself, so I think guys like being around that. So I'm going to go chronologically because it's kind of fun to look at your career, and you look at the first game you played in, Dale Howardchuck, Brett Hall, Al McKinnis, Grant Fuhr, and Chris Pronger, and Jamie Rivers. What do those six guys have in common? <laughs> <laughs> well, those guys aren't as handsome as me, but... Um, <laughs> No, you, you know, five Hall of Famers five is what Hall I was going with. But yeah. that your first game, and I mean, you could pick a lot of Blues rosters and do that, but Dale Howard, I mean, these are big, big numbers from these guys. I mean, what was that like stepping onto the ice and walking into that room that night in 1996 was your first game back in uh, uh, back 90, yeah, 96 for the Blues and uh, just, just knowing that you were in, in this room of greatness? Well, you know, I really didn't think much of it at the time, and, and what people don't always know is that I had a really solid junior career, uh, putting up you know really high numbers offensively as a defenseman, and then my first year in the minors in the American League, I did it again. So when I came to the NHL, you know my expectations were that I belonged, not in a cocky kind of way. I just felt like, yeah, these are great players, but I can play too. So I never felt that that moment of awe type thing. And it wasn't the other way either where I felt like I was better than anybody. I just felt like I belonged there. And, you know, obviously as things go on, you learn where your role is going to be. You learn where you are in the pecking order and all this kind of stuff. And had the opportunity to play with Prongs as a partner, with Al McGinnis as a partner. Uh, And it was great to learn from those guys. So, you know, although my career ultimately didn't end up like these guys, uh, when I first came in, it was very similar to what these guys had done in junior. So... That eased the transition for me. I'm sure a guy like Mike Keenan really boosts that confidence too. So let me, uh, I know it's got to be, fun. yeah, you may, uh, he just made a face, folks, in case you're listening. <laughs> you, can't, you can't see, but just, I, I love stories. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot a few times here, but your you know, first dealings with Mike were a favorite crazy Mike, Iron Mike Keenan story because you did play, well, I think four games this, the first year that came up, and then you did have, I think, six or seven until he got let go so you did get a few a cup of coffee with him I guess that was enough yeah you know Mike was an interesting character and (laughs) 
you know, he wasn't the guy who drafted me. Ron Caron was. And you know how that works. You get a guy who comes in, a new guy, he wants to put his own stamp on things, and you're not his guy. Um, so that was difficult because he pretty much said that to me right away. And I was just a young kid that never played in the NHL, even at that point. So it's pretty difficult when you're staring across the, the desk at Mike Keenan. He's basically telling you, I don't like you. And not because I don't like you for any I just don't like you because you're not my guy. And that was hard because you kind of have to, you know, change that mindset for the guy. And I think there was pressure from Ron Caron and other people in the organization that were still around saying, you know, you need to give this guy a chance. And I think Mike's way of giving me a chance was I'm going to try and make his life miserable. Uh, <laughs> and he tried, I tell you, the first month, I think, that I was with the Blues uh, in a professional, like staying around, I played one game here and then he sent me down right away. And then they went on a West Coast swing and they had L.A., Anaheim, San Jose, and the last game of this whole thing was he came back to St. Louis. Well, I was in Worcester when he sent me down, which is Boston, and he called me back up. So I went from Boston to San Jose, played a game. After the game, he sent me back down, all the way back to Boston. I played a game the next night for Worcester, called me back up, all the way out to L.A., all the way back down to Worcester after the game. After that weekend, called me back up to play. Called me back up to play <laughs> in Anaheim, and sent me back down again. So you can see where I'm headed with this. You get so many points, though. This is great. You get oh, free travel. It was crazy. I honestly started to giggle because there's so many different time zones that I had, you know, come and gone and all over the place, and I, I, it was craziness. And when he finally had said, "Well, we're going to send you down to Worcester for a, a period of time." It's not like I was happy about it, but I was like, thank God I get to settle in somewhere. So, you know, Mike was famous for that. He's, he was the guy that called you up from the minors. You know, you went out for warm-up, sent you down after warm-up because he didn't feel like you looked like you were ready to go and warm-up. So a lot of little mind games that, you know, quite honestly, I look back on now and I say, what a joke. You know, he no he, reason for it. Had he ever really described why he pulled these things? Because I've heard, you know, many stories like this. Was there ever someone who finally got to him and said, why are you doing this? Or just because he's, he's crazy. Well, <laughs> no, guys did certainly do that. And it wasn't really like, why are you doing this? It would be like, almost like physical confrontations. Like, what the heck is wrong with you? And why, who the hell do you think you are? And, you know, Mike never, he never had a reason for it. His reason was he didn't have a reason. And... You know, I think Mike was a guy who wanted deep down inside to be Scotty Bowman. That was kind of his idol. And Scotty was known for manipulating players, not in a bad way, but controlling egos, making sure that everybody you know, conformed to the group. Uh, and Mike thought he could do the same, but he's no Scotty Bowman. Never was, never will be. Uh, and it's always dangerous when you try to take on somebody else's method of madness, so to say, and you really don't know what you're doing or why he was doing it. So to me, it always ended up uh, an unfinished product, which is unfortunately what happened in a lot of places where he coached, was he got close but couldn't seal the deal. Yeah, he got lucky in New York because he had that great, that great group, and then he brings them all here, and it doesn't work, and he starts doing what he did with you guys. But on that note, in New York, I think it was very early in the playoffs, I know I heard it right from some of the players' mouths that were in New York. Mark Messier walked into his office – and basically said, shut up. Don't say another word. You're not coaching. Let the assistant coaches do their job. We'll let you on the bench for the games, but shut up, and we're going to win you a Stanley Cup. And as the story goes, they do it. 
And Mess leads the way. We know he had the famous, you know, guarantee win and all that stuff. But, you know, Mike Keenan was there along for the ride. And he obviously reaped the benefits of it with the Stanley Cup championship. And then, of course, promoted himself to the world as the world's greatest coach. So, you know, I think you probably sense at this point there's no love lost between me and Mike. Yeah, yeah but this, I mean, that whole group has those type of stories. Uh, Holly, I'm sure, has a few of himself. Uh, and that's where I want to go next, just the, some of the things. I mean, Holly's one of these crazy characters who, I mean, I grew up watching him, and I got the chance to get to know him as a kid doing this. And he was so good to me. But those interviews after games where he was just completely, the, 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 he was telling the truth. What was it like just kind of being around him, a superstar who, who kind of, Kind of did his own thing and knew knew basically the rules and kind of got you know beat down by this guy and then and then just playing with with Brett. I mean, you know, play with him three different times. I think. Yeah, you know, Holly was great to me. He really was. I came in as a young guy, and you know, like I mentioned earlier, had a successful junior career, and Brett had found that out or read up on it or someone had told him, and so he kind of took me under his under his wing when I first started with the Blues, and it was great because. You know, as as brash as he seems to be sometimes, a lot of that is just giggles for him. You know, he walks away and everybody's like, oh, my God, and he's snickering to himself or winking at the guys as he walks away. Like, that was fun for him. So for me it was great because he did a great job of being, you know, my mentor, so to say, as far as just getting within the group and getting to hang out with guys like Gretzky and, and Chelios and Lidstrom and Eisenman, all these guys that when we played together, probably a fourth liner doesn't usually end up hanging out with these guys. But because Brett and I were friends, it opened a lot of those doors. And you know what? We got a great relationship. It's funny because it's kind of like the odd couple sometimes. We get in a room and people are like, you guys are finishing each other's sentences, you know? And we just have that kind of relationship uh, so it was great I love Brett to death I love playing with him he helped me tremendously in Detroit he personally went in and told the coaching staff that he goes you know Rivers is better than you think you know give him a chance here and there and it's amazing how that works you know, they start to give you a little more ice time and realize that maybe it's not so bad and so it was great he was kind of like my big brother my agent and my buddy all at the same time and we shared a lot of cold ones together, too, so that certainly helps out. I was going to say, I don't know if you can pinpoint a favorite road story or favorite Brett story. I, we can, this is something that is recurring. I remember when he was having his number retired, and I got to sit down at Bob Bassin and a Garth Butcher and, and Kelly, of course, and uh, it just they just kept flowing. If you have a favorite either road story, something in the room that, uh, that you, you always think of when someone says, tell me a Hull story. Oh, my gosh. I... Um... Uh, you know, there's been so many that have been kind of regurgitated over the years, but I remember when Pierre Turgeon first came to the Blues, and Turge was a, a you know, a point-of-game guy his whole career pretty much. Great player, but Turge liked to shoot the puck. And, you know, Holly was used to getting a setup man. So, you know, I remember they were having some, some discussions, we'll call them, back and forth about one of the power plays that we had. And uh, so Holly gets up. And he goes, Terz, why are you not passing me the puck? He goes, Holly, the guy's covering you. He goes, listen, Terz. He says, if I have my stick over here, that means I'm covered. If I have it slightly raised, it means pass me the goddamn puck. And Terz still says, well, you're covered. He goes, I scored 50 covered. Give me the puck. <laughs> so, you know, it was funny because Terz is this French-Canadian guy. And he's looking around like, is this guy for real? And we're all kind of giggling. 
Um, and then, you know, a couple of games later, they're still kind of bantering, feeling each other out because they're new line mates, and Hully walks over and picks up Terge's stick, and Hully used to do that all the time, look at guys' sticks, and he looked at it, and he didn't even flex it, he just dropped it in disgust and said, holy crap, you must be way better than I thought being able to play with that piece of junk. So, to, you know, everybody gets a, a giggle out of it, but once again, that was way... He kept the locker room loose, and although some guys didn't realize it right away, that was his way of poking fun at them. And, uh, you know, I don't think he was ever really maliciously trying to be a dick to somebody, but uh, it was fun. Those are great stories for me, the the ones that probably – that's probably one that hasn't been told. I mean, so many others have been told. Yeah, yeah, we can go go through a million of them. I I get – when I look at this, the, the Blues and you think of all the great teams they've had, I, I just think of that time. You weren't here for 92, 93, or the 90s where the, it was just really, the, and they kind of blew that one up. But the, the 95, 96 team, and even after that, you look at the names, like I, like I said, Pronger, uh, Al, Holly, and Gretzky. Where do you think that team should have? I mean, that team should have. Do you think the 95, 96 team was... Because by night, and then Gretzky's not here the next year, but is that the one that kind of sticks out with Eiserman? You know, obviously, Fuhr gets hurt, Eiserman. Kind of the things that go wrong, is that the one that, that you think, wow, that's the one year we could have? I mean, I sat with Bernie and did this, and we just name them. You know, they, yeah. they keep rolling off your tongue. But this is the one, as, as a fan, that I grew up watching that I think of. Yeah, you know, for me, I was just so young, and um, I got called up right before the playoffs started. And, you know, we had Gretzky, we had Corson, Cortnall, McInnes, Pronger, all these guys, Hall. It was just unbelievable. And obviously we have Grant Fuhrer, who at the time was, if you want to talk about a big money goalie, I don't mean financial, I mean like big game guy. I mean, he's a guy that you want to ride going into the Stanley Cup playoffs. And he was playing phenomenal. And, and I think for us, the biggest turning point was his injury. And no disrespect to John Casey, because he came in and played really, really well. It just wasn't always consistent. You know, we had one great game, one bad game. Well, there was a whole group. I'm sure there was a group effort involved, and trust me, because you don't win or lose with one guy. But certainly the uh, the swagger of having Grant Fuhr in the net is different than having your backup goalie, who still was a, uh, you know, a, a good NHL goalie. But for me, that's the one that stings the most because you look at that playoffs and you look at how it developed from there on, and you just look at our lineup and say, there's no way we would have lost. There's no way. And Gretzky was, you know, one of the best players still in the game at that time. And it just it sucks because as a young guy, I was that close to being able to get to a Stanley Cup final or even maybe even win it. And then obviously after that, you know, it kind of dismantled the team a little bit. And it's kind of like they, we were chasing our own tail for a few years before. Joel came in and they did a whole you know, rebuild at that point. But, yeah, that's the year for me that stings the most. And I see uh, that, you know, that wonderful Steve Eiserman shot so many times. And I'll tell you what, it was weird being in Detroit and they're playing that as a highlight, mm-hmm. you know, and you're sitting there going, son of a gun, I mean, I'm sick of that goal. <laughs> yeah, so from center ice and just – but you uh, – it was Pronger and McKinnis for all those years too and you got to play with them. And uh, it's one of those things where you're, as a fan, you're watching and you know you're watching greatness, but as soon as it's gone, then you really realize how great it is. It's, it's how I always talk about, like, the Albert Pujols. I knew I was watching greatness, but now that he's gone, I'm like, wow, that was great. 
Did you feel that as you got to play with them? And the fact that you know you get to watch these two defensemen, I, I always think of them on the power play. I mean that there was no two better guys, two better defensemen on a power play. And maybe you know Pronger seemed like he started chirping more once Al retired. It seemed like he <laughs> finally got out. Of, like Al kind of kept him in, in tow. Just a little bit about those two. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the privilege of playing with those guys was phenomenal. And Prongs is a guy that was my age. We were drafted um, a year apart. Uh, played junior against each other and then came up here and played together in, in St. Louis. So that was a real comfortable fit for me. And you know, we got along great. We hung out away from the rink, which is always a bonus when you get to know your teammates that way. And, you know, then I was put into a position when Joel came in of playing with Al. Uh, and, man, that was a privilege. Like, that's one where, you, like you just said, it's, it's so great. The little tidbits that he'd give you for advice and, you know, the way he – taught me to stand up at the blue line and he was one of the reasons that I started throwing a hip check was because he was like do it he's like you can do you got the wheels to do it you got the work you know the ability to do it he goes I'll just be coming over and I'll pick up the loose change whatever pucks are laying there he's like you just got to get a piece of the guy well it was great because it, it gave me you know a, an added element to my game and gave the team some physicality which is always nice but it was great because I would be able to get the puck and where do you want the puck you want it in Al's hands so for me it was great I mean he did a great job of teaching me how to you know, support your partner and be there make it more difficult for the other team uh, he was he did a lot that I look back on now as a coach myself that I'm like, wow, he was coaching me at the time. I just didn't know it. Yeah, he's, I mean, he was just precision and great and awesome. And every time after games, it was like a librarian. He always had the same answers, but it was always fun. (laughs) We'll get back to the interview with Jamie Rivers in a little moment. He's going to talk about almost dying on the ice, almost dying in a hockey game. It's a crazy story. You won't believe it. But now I want to talk about our title sponsor, Masses Restaurants. You know them, you love them, you've heard me talk about them. Have you told them that your podcast friend, Brad, has sent you in there? Well, you should. If you do, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe a Jack and Coke will come your way. Maybe an extra T-Rav, a little extra sauce. It's Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. There's five locations. STLMasses.com is their website. You can find menus and directions. If you go on that website and you start looking at menus, your mouth will water. You'll just think, oh my goodness, where, where, where do I start? Do I start in the apps? Of course I start in the apps. I could do spin dip. I could do toasted raviolis. Their cheese bread is crazy good. You could go and just have cheese bread. I would get five orders of that, get some T-Ravs, and you've got a, a meal right there. Then you move on to the, to the pasta. Oh my goodness, red sauce pasta, white sauce pasta, Cajun chicken pasta. They've got fish. Move on to those meats. They've got steak, fillets. Oh, the beef pepe. You got to try this beef pepe. I don't know if I've talked about this enough, but man, when I was in college, I'd eat that once a week. It's got this uh, sauce. It's a little, little kind of a peppery sauce, hence the beef pepe. I could go on and on about masses, but you know you've heard me talk about them. Tell them your podcast friend sent you. You'll love the atmosphere. You can go there before you eat, sit at the bar, watch some sports. They'll put on whatever game you're looking for, hopefully. Cozy up to the bar. Talk to those bartenders. I don't know if you, I don't know if you've heard this. They're a hoot. They're big fun. Your waiters, waitresses. It's good for a night out. It's good for a date. It's good for whatever you want to do for dinner. It's a wonderful time out. Masses Restaurants in St. Louis. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. Want to talk about them? Also, want to remind you, I'm always looking for new sponsors. I appreciate Masses for being the first to jump on board and become the title sponsor. But 2017, we're looking for bigger and better. 
So join me on this podcast excursion and become a winning sponsor, and I will get people to your businesses. I don't know if you saw all the trending that happened with the Joe Buck interview. Awful announcing picked it up. Awfulannouncing.com, one of my favorite blogs. Big League Stew from Yahoo. They picked it up. I have to thank Tim McKernan for talking about it on his show. Tim McKernan, 590, the fan. He's got a place right down the street from me. I'll be going there a bunch. Kirkwood Brewhouse. See, I'll give you a free plug. I don't mind. So anyway, please, if you're interested, I'd love to have you come on board and we can talk about how I can help pimp your product like I'm doing here for Masses and Tim McKernan. I'm doing that for free. And also, lastly, before we get back to the interview, go to iTunes and, uh, and, and just give me a quick positive review. I want to see that thing show up when you hit the search button. Go in there, search Baseball and Beyond, give me some, give me some stars, say, wow, what a great podcast. I enjoy it every week. Anytime there's a new one up, I can't wait. So again, I thank you for listening. Let's get back to Jamie Rivers on Baseball and Beyond. Uh, I did some Twitter stalking of you, so I thought of uh, you showed you had a picture of Tony Twist just knocking someone else out, and um, I, that was also one of those great times. Um, tell me something about that guy. I, I, we all know him. He's he's a, he's a nut. He's self self served. Nut. He'll say it, but uh, just maybe a time where you thought, my gosh. I hope that guy is all right, whoever he just put on a stretcher over there. Or, or maybe a night when he told you, hey, Rob Ray, I'm going to, uh, not only am I going to beat him up, but I'm going to take him down and then punch him while we're going down. Do you have any <laughs> memories of Tony kind of remind, letting you guys know that you're going to see something special? Yeah, you know, you always kind of knew when Twister was aggravated, although it was so, uh, it was so normal for him, you know. It was serene almost. I always joke around with him. I'm like, you're like Hannibal Lecter who just finished stabbing a guy or eating his face and then you're listening to classical music <laughs> after. You know, it's like some of it didn't make any sense. But, you know, Tony, what people may not know about Tony is he's extremely intelligent. And he knew... Early- I surely, I don't know that. So yeah. that's good. This is good to know. No, I'm I, love, you, I love Tony. He's really intelligent. And he figured out really early that he wasn't going to be a guy that could stick around as a goal scorer. And he did have the ability to play physical or fight or, you know, whatever, enforce whatever we wanted. And so he knew when the, when the game got out of hand or one way or the other or going in against a team, like you could see him. He'd walk in. And I remember one time... Um, before the game, just doing a couple of bench press just to get warmed up. And, you know, 225 is like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty proud of myself strutting around, you know. Twister walks over to the bench press a straight bar and curls the damn thing ten times, you know. And you're like, oh, my God, what is going on? I mean, literally it felt like there was a silverback gorilla in the room. <laughs> and I don't mean that with any disrespect. Right. He's just so strong. Uh, and he used to, you know, go out in, in morning skate with cut-off shirt and just stand and stare at the other team's tough guy. Like, not even break eye contact ever and you see those guys like almost start to twitch because they knew well this is what I've got to deal with tonight and tell you what it was great because like I said he's he's such a great team guy and he was so tough that you could go out there and play however you wanted didn't matter like even if you had a gaffe where I took that a little too far you didn't have to worry because you knew that at any point you throw a leg over the boards and now you've got you know, the biggest nuclear weapon in the world that you can push the button at any point and it's going to destroy the opposition. So, you know, Twister's a dear friend of mine. Uh, we hang out a lot together still. And the one thing that people may not know about him, as crazy as he is in that moment, is he's got one of the biggest hearts. 
There's so many things quietly that he takes care of for people and helps out and does so much work behind the scenes. And he doesn't like that recognition. And I think he enjoys just being Tony Twist, the most feared man in hockey. Uh, but I'll tell you what, he's an awesome guy and uh, very fortunate to have him as a friend. Got to work with him. I uh, made. I, I think I was being my sarcastic self, as you've seen me do before. And he goes, all right, Brad, that's fine, but I'm going to come back there and I'm going to talk to you after this break. And he got up and he came at me and he pulled me out of my chair and I thought I was going to die. <laughs> then he stopped. But everyone in the room looked at me like, you really made him mad. And I said, I, I think he knows. I was just kidding. Um, I'm going to go forward and then come back. But lastly, you come back to the Blues and Walt and Kachuk, another guy who I got to spend some time with. Uh, this is I got to travel with those teams and just see Walt do his thing. He's, he's a funny guy, um, probably you know, Hall of Famer, absolutely, someday. Uh, great, one of the great American players of all time. Just give me something. To, again, I love these little, in, these little you know, Pierre Turgeon, Hulley stories. You have a favorite Kachuk because he's, a, he's just a chirper. He chirps oh, and chirps and chirps and chirps. I get a great story. and no, The player will, will keep him nameless at this point but the player jackman <laughs> no 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 it wasn't jacks i would tell you if it was poor jacks <laughs> uh the player was you know younger guy you know was really pissed because he kept getting healthy scratched and when he did play it was minimal and then he'd get healthy scratched and he just started dragging his lip around the room and i remember walt saying what's your problem and the guy's like well damn i can't get the freaking lineup coach keeps scratching me and you know goes through a list of like all these things, poor guy, you know. And Walt just sits there and goes, well, maybe you should just play better. <laughs> and the guy looked at him he goes, yeah, last few times he's like, you kind of suck. So maybe you should play better and that'll help you. And so that's just, you know, that's the typical Walt thing where there's no polish. Uh, it's a straight delivery, very simple, but very, like, direct, like, boom, hit you between the eyes. And, man, we laugh so hard because it's so true. Like, if you want to get back in the lineup, play better. And Walt was just, that was kind of the way, his way of, of getting his message out there, his humor, and I love it. He had so many of those moments. I remember we were in Columbus. I'll never forget this. We were playing poker, Mike Caruso. I don't know if I can mention that he has a little poker game sometimes, but <laughs> I will, and I'll edit if I need to. But Walt sees us at the bars. We're getting, he goes, well, I'll be up there in a little bit. So we start playing poker. Two, three hours go by, no Walt. Knock at the door at like 3 in the morning. Here's Walt with a wagon. 80, 90, 100 beers. All right, boys. And he played, what I, what I, and this is what I, the, the, the point of the story, and I learned this from Bernie Federico and got it affirmed from Walt, is you guys literally have a schedule. <laughs> and the schedule is skate in the morning, lunch, four-hour nap, game. <laughs> that's it. Repeat. You guys have such a different oh, schedule, okay. right? I mean, but, and that's like, and the, the thing is, is like, even if there was a, a few drinks here and there, you guys skate that stuff off. I mean, ask anybody who goes out and, and has a night, tell them to try to go skate or have Hitch, you know, yell at you for an hour or have Coach Q and whoever, Mike Kitchen was here yelling at him, you know, and you just skate that stuff out. And I think that's the craziest thing about your guys' schedule. Yeah, you know, and it you know, having a couple of cold ones was always part of the program. It always was, you know, take the edge off after the game, whatever. Even if you didn't go out and have, you know, so many that you get wobbly, you just have a few and whatever it was, you always had a couple. And, you know, we never really got days off. And the NHL, everybody's mandated days off and all this stuff. So no matter what, the next morning, you knew you had to skate. And so, quite honestly, it almost was motivation sometimes to drink a few more because you're like, well, you know what, I'm going to sweat it out anyways, so why not have a couple more? And 
it's funny how that worked, but the coaches would know. You know, guys would try the Vicks Vapor Rub trick. Like, they're coming down with a cold and have Vapor Rub from their eyebrows to their toenails so they wouldn't smell like booze the next morning. But coaches always pick that stuff out. They're like, oh, yeah, you must be feeling pretty sick today, you know, tank kind of thing. And uh, But we always had a good laugh about it. Holly was always good for a couple of stumbles <laughs> the day after and, and other guys, too. Walt was good for that. But, you know, like you said, you get on the ice, you skate, you sweat it out, go have lunch again as a group, and go shut it down and, you know, press, play, rewind, repeat, all that stuff. Yeah. It was amazing how it just really was like Groundhog Day. I love that schedule. You have a skate to do here in a second, so just a couple more minutes with you. Ottawa, Detroit. I was looking at this team in Ottawa. All right, Yashin, Hosa, Alfredson, Mike Fisher. Then you have some blues. Ricard Pearson, Patrick Laleem, Mike Sillinger, Igor Kravchuk. But you guys get swept in the first round of that year, and uh, I just can't believe it. You guys had 48 wins, and I look at the talent and the numbers. I mean, these are, I mean, those are some. That's like a NH. That's like a, a video game right there. Those names. I mean, and then the Detroit season also the next year or 0304 Hall Shanny still had Iserman. That great team doesn't make it. So you've had some some teams. You've been on some really good teams that didn't make it. How hard has it been to not? not have that you know final game where you have a cup because you you're on teams that you're probably thinking this is the team that's going to do it well yeah you know in ottawa we had kind of marched through the season and we had a lot of wins a lot of points first place we ran up against a toronto team that played playoff hockey and as great as some of those guys were in our lineup they were young some of them and some of them were not battle tested so we had corson Roberts, Tucker, Domi, all these guys playing against us who knew that they had to make it absolutely miserable for us, and they did. And some of our younger guys, our talented guys, the Havlats, and all those guys that were still like getting in the league, I think that was a learning process for them. They learned really quickly that the game changes in the postseason. So I think that's you know that's where things kind of went south with that team. And Havlett was a former Blue. I forgot to mention that's right. it. Yeah, you missed one two of games them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> last year. Yeah. And then um, in Detroit, you know, we we had I mean we just killed it in the regular season. We had a great regular season. Was that were they the Cup winners the year before? I'm per- fairly certain, right? Because yeah. they had to be Hull and Shanahan's Detroit Cup together. So the next year, the team still. I mean, that's the same groups. I mean, you have Zetterberg still. and Absolutely. I mean, yeah. we had – and then we added uh, Darian Hatcher. We added Robert Lang. I mean, we had some real like, – I always laugh because I look around the room and it was like almost an entire room full of Hall of Famers, and there I am stuck in the corner. I was like, I'm not saying a word because they don't even know I'm here. But the moment I speak, they're going to send me down or trade me. And, you know, another situation where I just chipped in where I could, but – we get in the playoffs, and you know we beat Nashville in the first round, which is, wasn't really that big of a test for us. And we get Calgary in the second round, and they had just beaten Vancouver, and we knew we had to play well. Now, however, the first couple of games, we got massive injuries. You know, Hully had a broken hand. Robert Lang had a broken foot. Steve Eisenman literally got a slap shot in the face and broke his face. So we've lost three guys at that point that are – huge for us especially Iserman he was such a leader of that team and uh, it was tough because we had to try and count on other guys and Darian Hatcher was is was you know one of these great players but he was coming back after knee surgery and not quite up to speed but was still in the lineup or playing against the other team's top lines and they had a hungry young team over in Calgary we should have still won the series but 
that is for sure the one for me. You know, obviously with the Blues in 95, 96, but I was older here in Detroit, and I could really sense that this was a team that we should have won the Cup with, and we would have. If we get through Calgary, we have no resistance. That's the year Tampa Bay won it, and quite honestly, we would have kick the crap out of them any day of the week. Doesn't we, everybody look at Tampa Bay and go, we could beat any time, uh, no matter when Tampa's in there, how good their team is. You're like, what is Tampa Bay doing? They're in Florida. I know, I know, I'm telling you. But no, especially that year. Yeah. You know, we just, we had such an amazing team. Like when you're, you know, your fourth line is, you know, Draper, Malpe, and McCarty. Like, I know they're the grind line, but that's still some talented guys. And we got Zetterberg and Dotsuk, Hull, Shanahan, Robert Lang, Steve Eiserman, Thomas Holmstrom. Like, the list goes on and on and on. We should have won that. We should have won the Cup that year. Red Army. Yeah. Uh, so we wrap up, and it, 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 you had this crazy thing happen to you where you almost died. And this is not a joke. You almost died. Just tell me a little bit about rupturing your spleen. By the way, still playing, what, how many years? You played... 29, 30 years of hockey. I mean, you start, obviously, you talked about your junior career, which you can look at Wikipedia, but then you leave the Blues in 06 and you're still playing in like 2013 or something like that. St. Charles, or not St. Charles, but you're, you're playing everywhere. But then you have this really crazy thing happen to you and just kind of walk us through that. Well, it was just a game I was playing uh, in the Austrian League. I was playing for a Croatian team. And, you know, we were down by a goal or two, and I told my guys, I said, look, let the guy come through the middle. I'm going to nail him. We're going to turn this thing around because there's no fighting in Europe, right? But if you nail a guy, you can send a message. And it worked exactly as planned. And, I mean, I crushed this guy with a hit. And little did I know at the exact same moment I'd burst, my spleen had burst. I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel any different. Finished the game, um, rode the bus back, all these things, you know, and fast forward because the story is so long. But... You fast forward to where I was bleeding internally for, you know, almost 24 hours and my body was like going into shock. I couldn't even move anymore and I didn't understand what was going on and going to a Croatian hospital was not my first choice. No disrespect, but I was used to Canada or the United States uh, and English. <laughs> which was a bonus. Um, Spleen, rupture, bleeding. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, you get in there and you're trying to do these charades and trying to tell, and I can't even move at the time, and so they literally were like, you know, we're going to have to cut you open and see what we're dealing with. And so it rattled me a little bit when we took the elevator down three floors underground to do the operating, and I was like, this is creepy. You Who know? are you with? Anybody with you? No, nobody was with yeah. me. I mean, I just... It was weird. It was it was an awkward feeling, and then my wife had called, and we were on the phone together while they're, like, shaving my chest and things like this on the operating table. We're still talking on a cell phone. And we're still in the operating room? This isn't some crazy It's not the house. movie Hostel. Yeah, I thought for sure they were just going to cut me into pieces and sell me. Um, but, no, I, and I, I remember being put... Like out cold in my clothes pretty much. I had my shirt off and then I woke up and I was stark naked on a steel table in the corner of the room. And it was really bright and there was like, it seemed like there were 30 people. So it was probably about nine or 10 people in the room. And I went to get up and I obviously made a noise because it, I was in a lot of pain and it just cut me open. I didn't know how bad they'd cut me open, but it was, you know, from belly button to like nipple, like this huge gash. And they turned and looked at me, like, in shock, and then they came running over and kind of pushed me back down, put a blanket on me, put a pillow, strapped me in, IVs, all these things, and I never thought much of it. I was like, all right, whatever. And then I come to find out later on, down two, three weeks later, that 
you know, they just thought I was dead. And I was in the corner, like, ready for the toe tag type thing. I'm not kidding you. And so when I moved around, I didn't know it. They weren't really, like, doing it as far as, like, doing a procedure. They were scared to death because they thought, oh, my God, this guy's alive. Um, and so that was a weird experience. And it was the end of my career at that point, I mean, to try and get back at that age. And, and I really hadn't been cleared. It was hard to get insured after that. And teams were kind of reluctant. And I understand why. I mean, I would be too. And so that was the end of the road for me. And it was almost like the end of the road of hockey was almost the end of the road for right. me in general, in life. So uh, I'm on borrowed time now, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're here. And I appreciate your time. So lastly, just what you're doing. Um, a friend of mine has got kids that play hockey, and they're like, oh, Jamie Rivers. Oh, we love you because you have some stuff going on. Plus, you also have a podcast, too. You're, we're competing. <laughs> no, we're not competing. No, no competition. Um, you know, I have a company called Synergy Hockey, and uh, it's skill development for all ages. And I work with NHL guys and college guys and junior guys and you know, hockey's grown so much here in St. Louis, and I've had the privilege of working with, you know, a number of really good players, and, and five of which were drafted in the first round of the NHL, which is neat. It's cool. I mean, I mean this is a hotbed. This is crazy, right? I mean, this kids, like I said, my buddies, their kids love hockey. They love it. Yeah, it's uh, times have changed in St. Louis. Yeah, we, we didn't know. I don't think we really knew that you could really do I had friends across the street that did it. And I'm like, oh, well, that's weird. They they're a hockey family, but it, it like now it's that's kind of what it is now. Oh uh, yeah, you know that's good. The guys that have retired here, you know, got into the coaching game immediately with youth hockey. You know, the Bernie Federicos, Mike Zooks. I mean, we're going back, mm-hmm. but then your second wave was like Basil McRae, Jeff Brown, Kelly Chase, Keith Kachuk, Al McInnes, Scott Mellonby. Like when you start dropping these names. When you have contact with that many kids and you're coaching them and bringing them along, it just automatically improves the product just because of the knowledge of those guys and what they can give the kids for tips and skill development. And, you know, now they get the next wave, which is like guys like me and Jax and all these other guys that are uh, still here coaching. And so what we're doing is we're able to grow the game. One, the Blues are doing fantastic last couple of years, you know, so that's a huge thing. People get interested in hockey because of the success of a team. And then what happens then is people want to play hockey, and then they find out that there's these other guys who play for the Blues that are on coaching hockey. It's amazing how that just motivates more kids to play hockey. And it's great. I'm telling you, hockey in St. Louis is doing really well. And uh, we're shocking the world. And what's the name of that again? Uh, Synergy Hockey. Website's uh, synergyhockeyskills.com. We have everything listed under there from lessons to camps to consulting. You name it. It's on the website. So this is going to be your bread and butter. This is where you're going to make the money here, right? Now you're going, this is, you're going to Shark Tank. This is, where, this is where the bread is buttered. Yeah, well, I don't know. Shark Tank, I may not be ready for that. <laughs> but, no, i got a great bunch of people here that support it. And certainly uh, almost every organization in the city, youth hockey organization, does work with us. And we get tremendous support. So, and including the Blues, you know, we're we're partners with the Blues in their youth hockey movement, and we run their camps for them. So, it's great. It's when everybody's pulling on the rope together. It's amazing what you can do. Well, it was great catching up with you. A great career, and the alumni game will be just like the old days. You'll be watching all these greats going, "What the hell am I doing out here with these guys?" But I think you're a great, Jamie. I remember uh, I remember meeting you right when you came up. I have that interview. I'm going to have to give it for you. Uh, but I'm sure that's going, to be, I mean, that's going to be a blast, and I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, it's going to be great. You know? uh, I'm excited about it. It's great to get the old band back together and, and have some fun. And 
that's what it's all about. That's what you miss the most. So it's, it's really unique to have this opportunity again, and I, I'm going to make the most of it. Yeah, you guys probably just do this in February now. Was, hey, let's all get together and skate. <laughs> I thank Jamie Rivers for joining me on Baseball and Beyond. That's right, we went beyond with Jamie. He's going to skate now with the alumni. I'm going to watch it. I can't wait. It's going to be a fantasy camp for me. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.